Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. The museum's new location is 921 Washington Street, downtown Oakland. Our hours are noon to 7 p.m. Thursdays and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Fridays and Saturdays, and 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Sundays. For the past few years, and still to this day, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Jed, and due to schedules and travel, today we'll be rebroadcasting a past episode, our conversation with Tim Schaefer of Double Fine Productions. The episode aired in 2021, before Psychonauts 2 was released, so I thought it was interesting to listen back now that that game is out after a long production process. He also gets into some of the adventure game titles from his Lucasfilm days, as well as other stories from the history of gaming. I hope you enjoy it. First though, The Maid recently had a booth at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, and our event director Chris recorded an update from the Expo floor. everyone, this is Chris. Uh, I am the event director at the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. I am live here on the GDC Expo floor. GDC is the Game Developers Conference that happens in San Francisco every year in March. And we are here bringing a bunch of retro games from the museum over to the show floor for people to enjoy. And of course, talking about the museum and all the great things that we have here. Uh, with me is Rob Curl, our museum historian and general manager. So, Rob, let us know uh, your thoughts on your first GDC experience. Oh my gosh, uh, it's it's been wonderful. Um, I feel very lucky to uh, have the opportunity to come with the maid, and uh, it's it's wonderful to see both cross cultural and also cross generational enjoyment of uh, of what we have on on offer. Um, it's, a, it's a little hard to, uh, in fact, as I'm sitting here looking right now, I can see uh, what looks like a gentleman who's maybe, let's, make some, let's just make some wild assumptions here. Let's say it's a gentleman who's probably in his 50s or 60s who's in, enjoying Mario Kart Double Dash. And I, uh, we had uh, some folks who were uh, really old school. We had Roger Hector, one of the original developers of Battlezone yesterday. Uh, everybody just coming and enjoying uh, what we have. Um, and I think the most interesting thing has been the number of people who sit down, uh, both old timers and newcomers, uh, uh, and just dropping stories about uh, how uh, a games that they made, like either if it's newcomers, it's usually how old school games influence some of their choices that they've made uh, in some of their work. And if it's old school folks, it's they're literally saying like, yeah, I, I made that. Let me tell you how I made that. So that's been a really cool experience to, um, uh, to be able to participate in that. It's been really neat. Yeah. Yeah, it is super rad. We have a really great spot here on the show floor. Uh, we've been able to bring a lot of retro classics. So we have an Atari, we have an original Pong system that is available for play. Uh, we also have some game development spaces where people can actually practice coding on the show floor. Uh, and we also have some of our, what I call, retro classics. So we have NES Duck Hunt on the show floor. We've got Super Mario World on the SNES. My personal favorite, uh, Banjo-Kazooie on the Nintendo 64 is here. Um, and we have some other great exhibits as well. One of our uh, volunteers, Fergus, did make a women in history, um, women in gaming history uh, exhibit that we brought here to the show floor. So we have a couple games that feature that as well, including Kingdom Hearts for the PS2 and Centipede for the Sega Dreamcast. So that is being featured here as well. 
Um, it's been a great time. Lots of folks have come by, lots of opportunities to network and collaborate, a lot of educational opportunities, and really just getting to see this community thrive together has been a real joy. So we do hope that you will check us out uh, if you're here. And if you're not, no worries, we'll see you online. Um, and of course, please keep up with all of the other museum offerings. And we hope you have a wonderful week. All right, this is Chris signing out. Thank you for that, Chris. And now here's our rebroadcast interview with Tim Schaefer from 2021. Thank you for joining us today on the Maids Podcast. We have with here the Tim of Legend, Tim Schaefer. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, we have been delving into the history of Lucasfilm for weeks on end now. Uh, we had David Fox on the other day. I know he's the fellow who hired you there. Do you have yeah. any fond memories or David Fox stories? It's all his fault. Um, he was the one that called me when I applied for the job, and famously, I uh, almost lost the job when I was talking to him. Did he bring that up? Uh, I think he mentioned that he hired you. I don't know that he mentioned the story. <laughs> he was asking me what Lucas uh, film. It was called Lucasfilm Games at the time. What of their games I had played, and I was like, oh, I really love Ball Blaster. And he was like, Ball Blaster, huh? Hmm, that's what it was called when it was pirated. <laughs> I was like, Oh no, he caught me. Yeah, he totally caught me. But that's what motivated me to um do a ridiculous cover letter that looked like a text adventure. It looked kind of like a illustrated text adventure. I drew it on my Atari 800 with a koala pad. And wow. I drew these pictures of me trying to find my dream job and um, ending up at uh, Lucasfilm. So the Atari 800 was the was your weapon of choice at the time? Yeah, I, yeah, I started with a 400. I had a 400 with a little microwave oven keyboard, kind <laughs> of uh, membrane keyboard. Uh, and I loved uh, adventure games on that. That's why I got started with the Scott Adams adventures. You know, mm. I think um voodoo castle or um the count dracula one uh were the first i played and i got the little gold box set of all the five and a quarter floppies of all the scott adams adventure games in them but i think savage island was one of my like really pivotal to me i don't know why i love savage island what do you remember about it then um about playing adventure games no uh, no savage island <laughs> you know that's strange i mostly remember just that feeling of like i am so into this game and uh uh, that was the one. The sequel was really hard. You had to. You could walk down a hallway, but you'd run out. You 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 would run out of oxygen and die in the third or fourth move of the of the game. <laughs> no, if you didn't type the word hyperventilate, <laughs> just it's also a funny example of how like how they're like, well, we have, we have a text based engine. You don't have to type everything as like a verb and a noun. You can just like, you know hyperventilate. What a strange concept. I don't know how. But I did solve that, so I don't know how I did solve that. Maybe I looked up Soft Side Magazine for hints or something. But uh, then there was Ghost Town, which is the Western one, where I had to like go look up the um, how to make gunpowder, which was really fun. Like they used to have adventure games used to have like a, a a more of a sense of sending you out into the world. You know, it wasn't just contained in the game itself, but it would be like you have to get to figure out how to make gunpowder. Oh, I went over to the encyclopedia and I looked up how to make gunpowder and then I searched for the ingredients in the world and, and then made it. There was another one where we walked into a room and a ghost whispered whispered a long, weird word. And I went and looked up the word. and Like, oh, that gave me the clue that I needed. So Interesting. Uh, That's uh, a good point. You get a game like Minecraft today, making gunpowder in a, in a sort of a crafting way would just be arbitrary items. It would never correspond to actual items exacting Recipes, yeah, it's right? almost like a little more like AR games. Like, like most most games want to pull you into their world and never let you forget. Like, make you forget there is an outside world. Mm -hmm. Like, just all you need is me. All you need is the game. But those some of those other games are like, go out into the world and learn learn about gunpowder. 
kids. What could be healthier than that? <laughs> but is... I played those and all the Infocom games, uh, and uh, all the all the Zork games, and the um, what were I think there are Brian Moriarty's games, the Wish, uh, Hated Trinity, and the their spell what was what was the Sorcerer one with all the scrolls. Wishbringer. Oh, uh, Sorcerer, I think. Sorcerer, yeah, yeah. And Deadline and the uh, um, the Hitchhiker's Guide. These were all ones that came with elaborate packaging and books and, and interesting boxes. Yeah, that try. I wish I, I wish I had that spellbound mask now. That kind of Michael Myers mask that came with spellbound. Oh, that's right. Yes. This also brings up sort of the lineage and why the early adventure games were so brutal. Like the Sierra games, <laughs> you know, have no compunction with just offing you on just about any screen. They're not as bad as say the hyperventilate situation. Like they were considered more <laughs> charitable at the time, I suppose. I mean, also because I had one game for the whole summer. Like, I just like this is what I was putting everything I had into. You know, it wasn't like, you know, you have hundreds of um, games available to you every day on your console if you want to play. So, like, if something doesn't grab you in the first few seconds, you just move on. But back then, I was like, I've got to get through this game. I'm going to get through this game. I just, I just, I remember that feeling of being like in the seventh or eighth grade when I first heard about these games. It was like part of we were still understanding what the impact of computers would be and what the possibilities were for video games. I remember that feeling of like, well, computers are so powerful now. This is like 1979. <laughs> so powerful now. They can basically. You can type anything into them, and it will just answer you. It'll like that was the premise of adventure games. Like on a TRS eighty, you just like have a prompt, and you could just type, and they could just. I was like, you mean they just have every single possible English sentence inside of them waiting for you? And and my dad was like, yeah, basically, I think you know they're just so powerful now. And I was like, wow. And the thought of just going up and being able to type anything you want and have the game just simulate the world. So it wasn't exactly as robust as I was imagining it. And then I, you know, then I played those games where you could say get screwdriver but it was the imagination is a big part of it though mm -hmm. that was a huge part of these text adventures i want to move on to sort of the development tools of the day because that's another thing we cover and we like to talk about historically uh we've really covered the genesis of scum right down to the very beginning of discussions of, of chip and ron what did you think when you came into lucas and were handed scum to use as a tool i, I mean we loved it it was a uh, maybe it was just because it was a magical time we were like I was just out of college. Uh, I think uh, Dave was one year out of grad school, and, and we were working at Skywalker Ranch. So there's that context of like how amazing and beautiful and lucky we were. Uh, we were. Oh wait, we weren't beautiful. Well, we were. I don't know. You're so, beautiful, Tim. Yeah, it was a beautiful place, and we were very lucky to be there. And we learned, like you know, in school we would mostly use C. I had use C and and Lisp and stuff, and so. This uh, language seemed, it's, the main thing was, I think Ron had, had purposely written to be very usable and, and English friendly. Like it was like, it read like English. Walk, guybrush, to, window, wait for, actor, guybrush, you know, turn, guybrush, left. And it was very understandable. You could just, you could just see it very logical. And, um, and it's hard to really evaluate it because that was my first um, and only programming job was scum. You know, and, you know, people, we complain about it all the time, but it was like uh, uh, a very, just very simple and elegant way to just imagine an adventure game uh, and see the logic on the page. You could read anybody's scum code and be like, I know what this is going to do. That's a huge, huge aspect of sort of iterative workflow and being able to make things, you know, better over time and go back and edit things too, right? Yeah, because we were... Um, we were really crafting these things like second by second, like, you know, just sitting in that room with Dave and like you walk the character up to the desk. Oh, but his hand goes up like a pixel behind the desk when he should be in front of it. And you'd like paint something or draw something or program something differently. And like, you'd, you just really, um, you'd really go back and forth into this code to like make things look perfect, you know? 
and that's an interesting thing that I keep harping on is, is the thing that developers now are most interested in doing with their workflows is getting that immediate feedback, getting the edits in, getting the immediate feedback. It's a big thing yeah. of JavaScript. I mean, and, I probably made it sound a little more immediate than it actually was. I think nowadays, like with hot fixes, you're, like you're, uh, you're in Unreal or something and you change something and you're actually in the game engine when you do it. But we would actually have to sit there and compile for, like there are these little bits of our day taken away like 45 seconds or like, 30 seconds, 45, a minute, you know, and every, every time we wanted to make a change. So that's where I got into like Rubik's cubes and dumb <laughs> hobbies. I could do at my desk. <laughs> You're sitting at your desk, just waiting. That's, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, in the business world, they're 20, 30 minutes, two hours, four hours. So, you know, even then you were, those fast uh, compile times are very quick. I wanted to also talk about sort of the end of the Lucas world, because we really haven't talked about that with the other folks that we've spoken to. Uh, when I was in computer gaming world, I remember very distinctly when Grim Fandango came out and we were all loved the game and we were almost in mourning for it because we were just like, who's going to buy this right now? This, this, nobody buys our adventure games in 2000. Everybody wants first person perspective shooters and real time strategy games. Yeah, no one told us that when we were making it, though. That was, uh, that was news to us. I'm wondering, like, did you, you obviously you didn't think that at the time or what was your impression at the time? I just wanted to make that game. I think that's usually my blind spot about games. Like, I never have thought about, like, well, no, we did make commercial concessions. And, and Grimm, it had a big commercial concession in that it was 3D. You know, people have been trying to, like, push 3D for a while. And we were we were all about 2D art. You know, we had people like Peter Chan and you know, Larry were these amazing 2D artists. Like, wow, would 3D art look so bad? You know, it looks so chunky and clunky. And, but then I saw um, Bioforge, which is that... Um, Ken Demarest game where it looked and I was like oh, I could see this so I, I I could see that working for the Day of the Dead and I was just so uh, uh, invested in that game and um, and then I um, I guess I never really was like we were never really driven by like what game would sell the most we were just mostly inspiration driven which I think is what we're still today you know working by whatever idea really excites us because at least you know like we're still talking about Graham. We still just remastered it. We made a, you know money from it. You know when we remastered it, it was still something that um, that matters to some people. So it's I feel like in the end, you know, I'd rather have that. I'd rather have spent my energy on something like that that people still care about than something that maybe sold a lot in 1998 and no one no one does think about anymore. That is a good point. I mean, the good stuff is always eventually appreciated, especially in the games industry, I feel. I mean, I, I was just curious as, as to your thoughts at the time, because, I mean, that was it at Lucas, and, and you sort of took a little break after that, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that was going to be, whether I left, yeah, it took like a year while I was developing the next game. I was going to make this spy game. Um, and I think either way, that was not going to be a straight adventure game. I think it was going to be like moving in the direction to what eventually would become Psychonauts. It was just, I was playing a lot of games like Final Fantasy VII and uh, Super Mario just come out. And it's just like, wow, these games are so easy to move through and so quick. Like, I wonder if you could combine the exploration and puzzle solving adventure games with just this breezy, really immersive feeling, you know. So uh, I was working on that game. I think we were not going to be working in Scum anymore. But then I left and started LucasArts and, and jumped on full but um, I've talked so much, I don't remember the question. Uh, I was uh, sort of wondering your thoughts at the time, at the end there. When, like, how did you feel when Grimm came out when it, and how it was received? Um, I mean, it was still really exciting. Like, we won Game of the Year. That was really exciting from Games, um, GameSpot. And, mm -hmm. um, and the positive response the game got. I mean, I, we didn't really have... I mean, uh, we didn't have huge exp uh, uh, expectations with adventure games in that they were... You know, the company was starting to make Star Wars games and they were making tons of money. And we were like, you know, we had peaked with uh, Full Throttle. You know, Full Throttle had sold like a million copies. It was the first one that I remember selling a million, you know, mm. when it launched. And um, 
and then you know that I would just, I'm just always been happy to be able to make the games I made. But what I feel bad about is that people that are telling me that they felt Grim contributed to the end of the adventure games. These people oh, no. from uh, well, let me tell you the story. <laughs> so these these uh, guys from Gas Powered Games came up to me and like, yeah, we went to our boss and we're like, we want to make an adventure game. We love the uh, we love adventure games. We want to make an adventure game. And their boss said, hey, look. Are you going to make a game better than Grim Fandango? No one bought Grim Fandango. So you get, unless it's going to be like three times as good as Grim Fandango, it's not going to sell any better. And so it was like used as a weapon to cancel oh. other projects. And I was like, oh, you guys, come on. Oh, it's brutal. I mean, that was that was absolutely the thought process at the time, though. I mean, everything was first-person perspective shooters and real-time strategy. It was, it was the I heyday. Not to jump to the end or anything, but I feel like, what uh, what has happened is that people always ask, like, you know, why do adventure games die and stuff like that? No, they haven't died, obviously. We're no. still here talking about them. But obviously, um, also, if you say they're dead, you get in a lot of trouble with <laughs> adventure game fans. I'm not making that mistake again. But the feeling is, to, the thing is, to me, it, it, it only seemed like, I, I think the audience has always has stayed the same or grown for adventure games. It's just that the rest of the industry grew exponentially. So mm. back when we were doing, you know, the games like Archon and, you know, Pinball Construction Set and adventure games, adventure games were huge. And um, they're the only ones that had real narrative and beautiful art and beautiful music, you know. And then um, eventually, you know, like first-person shooters and uh, console platformers, exploded like i remember hearing the news that mario 3 had sold 3 million copies i was like what you can sell 3 million copies of a game what is going on uh you know and then um and the shooters brought in a lot of people who were previously not really interested in games and so it, it but um so back then it felt like you could always make you could always sell about 200,000 copies of an adventure game and i feel like you still could always do that i think you could still do that you know it's just that that doesn't feel like a hit to people you know mm. grim when it launched sold about 500,000 copies mm. um, it was just half as much as throttle which was a, a million mm. and um and so i think it's just the relative sales that make people think that they're not popular it's just that they didn't grow it, but they still is that um not like if you can figure out then the business model of making a profit by selling 200,000 to 500,000 copies of a game which is good you know mm -hmm. you can just don't um spend too much money you can you can make a living making adventure games yeah exactly uh, and i did not mean to insinuate that adventure games died or anything but i, I do remember you don't want to get in trouble either no i do not i don't want to be in trouble <laughs> but there, there was that dip uh, I wanted to shift gears and i also wanted to leave, leave time for you to talk about psychonauts too because i'm sure you have you know you got to get uh Got to get some things in there for the fans who are expecting that game if you want to talk about it. <laughs> Working on it. But I, I wanted to say if there, there were any sort of lessons that you learned from Lucas about managing passionate nerds that you've taken over to sort of the Double Fine and even to this day on Psychonauts 2. Managing passionate nerds. That's interesting. Um, you know, look, you went through a lot of turmoil and stuff in those early days. There were like factions. You know, they, we had the artists in B building and the programmers were in A building. And they would there'd be these fights that like who controlled the game? Who was more important, programmers or artists? Um, and then when we, Dave and I finally got to run a project, we really felt like the artists were, you know, equal to the programmers. And we tried to run things that way. And it, it seems strange now. Like it seems strange to talk about this time when, well, maybe it doesn't seem strange to people. Maybe people are still experiencing that. But to us... Like this, um, the era of actually like, hey, what if we actually uh, respected the artists? You know, what, we, um, it was it seemed like this new thing, and so trying to get rid of that sort of factionalism between the team is still is ongoing. Like, you st still have to fight this battle where it's really hard to create um, a culture of trust between departments. Like, making sure that uh, programmers and artists and and audio people and designers and producers all see each other as human beings who are all on the same side. That's one of the hardest things with a creative project that's under pressure for time and schedule and money. 
you know, because you can, especially, you know, we're all working in the same environment, you know, people are not, you can, you can check things out of a, a version control and mess up somebody else's work by checking something in wrong and it can just create a whole bunch of tension. So, but I noticed that at LucasArts, the, the just being different buildings and, and it's really easy to create a, a feeling of separation among a team and getting people to really feel like they're on the same team and they're working with their, their friends is a, is a, a really important thing to maintain because it just makes the, the whole process so much healthier and better for everyone. And how is Psychonauts 2 coming? It's uh, It seems like you've been hard at work. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, the story. It's like the story of our company in some ways. Like it, it started with crowdfunding and it got a publisher, then it lost its publisher, got another publisher, and then that publisher went away. And then it got Microsoft. It was like the opposite of Psychonauts 1. It started with Microsoft and then <laughs> went to another publisher. And so um, it's a funny mirror of the first game. But um it's it's just something we care about so much and we want to get right so we uh we uh are putting everything into it and um it's been great like i don't know what it would happen if we hadn't uh partnered up with microsoft because they're making sure that we are making all the decisions for the right reasons in the end because you know when you get under pressure you can get this decision you can just decide to like well i guess we won't polish the game or we won't fix these bugs or else you know some people would crunch the team and we really crunched the team on the first game and we made this resolution to not crunch the team anymore i think that's something that the games industry is slowly growing out of i hope you know and so um uh how do you know how do you solve that so but anyway that stuff that's going on now but uh, it's coming on great the team is great uh game's gonna be good i think it helps that microsoft at its core understands software development you know what i mean it's it, they seem to yes. Someone once said, I think it was Nathan Martz, or um, uh, lead programmer on Brutal. He said, uh, "Games are like the complexity of engineering multiplied by the subjectivity of art." So, I th- yeah, they, they, and people, working with people who know it could be unpredictable is important. It's very, it's very difficult to get it right. I mean, how do you know when something is right in a game? I mean, is it just fun, or I mean, how do you even tell if you've tried it a hundred times? I mean, that you play test it. You play test with other people. It's 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 an interesting thing now with uh, everyone living on Zoom, you know. But we are play testing over Zoom. We're watching people play it, which in some ways is better than uh, before. We'd like sit in a room and, sit, and put them on a couch, and we'd sit behind them and try not to cough and watch them play the game. But now we can just watch them on Zoom, and we have a recording of it, and we um, can share the recording with people. And um, and everyone has their own way of play testing the game. But it's like you can have the best intentions of the world, especially with adventure games. And um, if you don't kind of build in these ramps or like file off the edges, someone will just hit a hard stop. It's really easy to get a hard stop in an adventure game. And when you're watching someone, like a playtest environment is really painful. Because like those summers where I was playing, um, you know, Savage Island and, and Ghost Town, uh, you wouldn't feel the pain of me being stuck on a puzzle. It was just part of the fun. And then, but if you're in a room watching someone go like, I have to make gunpowder? I don't know how to make gunpowder. <laughs> it just, you feel like you instantly, oh, I got to. I got to change. It's really tempting to make every puzzle go away because you're like, oh, I hated that moment where the player didn't know what to do. And so that's that's a challenge for adventure games in the modern day because I think usability is a big f- emphasis on, on games. Now, people should always know what they're doing. They should be moving forward. Momentum is really important. And adventure games go against that in so many ways. They're like, you have to be, you have to find a way of making being stuck entertaining for people. <laughs> like, okay, I was stuck, but I was totally entertained. I always think of this example with my, my brother, when I was in high school, my brother would come back from his job in college at a summer camp, and they have all these summer camp games. And a lot of these are these little riddles, you know, like these those riddles for 
um, you know, a man is laying face down in the middle of a field. How did he get there? You were, you know, and you guess, you ask all these yes or no questions, and then you guess the answer. It's like a little puzzle, like an adventuring puzzle in a way. And the thing about it that made it fun was as we were stuck, we'd be telling this around the dinner table, but as we were stuck on this puzzle, he'd be smiling at us and like, <laughs> oh, you're really close. He'd be like, telling, oh, yeah. And then my sister would get a, hey, oh, oh, she got a hint. She got a, hey, I'd be like, what, what? She's going to give it for me. And that process of being stuck was really part of the entertainment. And I've always thought about those, those meals where we had one of his riddles going on. And like, how can I recreate that feeling of my brother kind of taunting me and making sure I knew I was really close to solving a puzzle. Like that always seemed like the adventure game magic to me. In fact, but and people might uh, feel differently about this, but he was the one that came back from the camp with a story of like, if this is three, if this is two, what's this? You can't, you can't see me on if you're not on the Zoom Wait, call. Uh, this, three this fingers three. versus one finger, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, it's the uh, Monkey Island Alley um, backdoor uh, pu puzzle that came from. I blamed that on my brother in his summer camp. <laughs> the summer camps come uh, always uh, come up with the most interesting riddles and weird games and stuff. Mm -hmm. Kids, it's like Lord of the Flies. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, I don't know, Psychonauts theory. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, Tim, thank you for being here, and good luck on Psychonauts 2. Uh, we thank really you. appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who help keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue to do that with future episodes every other week. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Patreon donors Sarah Tucker, Lucas with a K, and Trisha McGillis. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, I'm Jed. Thanks, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.